So we're in our last week of a series we've been doing this fall, Church Right or Right Church. Some of you have been here for every week, thank you, and I want to try to review a little bit before we get into our uh, new section. I've been deeply encouraged by this series and challenged because I want to be able to, I want to, be able to do church right. Uh, I'm one of the leaders of this church family. All of us as leaders want to do church right. We want to see you as the church as God sees you and interact with you as God desires us to. And I believe as we all desire to do church the way that God says, that there's great blessing in that and then powerful ministry that comes from our church family. The text that we've been in now for four weeks is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. It's a short passage. I'll just have you read it out loud with me again today. And again, I hope, I hope this passage, just because we've read it over and over again, this is a New American Standard. You can open it up and read it in your Bible as well. I hope it's just kind of taking root in our lives. So read it with me. 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 16. I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So you see from those words, the Apostle Paul is really concerned that Timothy know how he ought to conduct himself in the church. And so as this word is directed primarily originally to Timothy and then to the church at Ephesus and then to us, there's those images or uh, pictures, if I can say that, of what the church is. And again, just by way of review, church is a family. It is the household of God. We need to relate to one another that way. Church is a force. We are the church of the living God. There's power in us and through us simply because of that wonderful truth. Church has a foundation of truth and then our responsibility to the church to be the pillar and the support of truth and we talked about we need to hold it and receive it and then hold it up and proclaim the truth of God that never changes. Now today we're going to focus on this last idea the church has a focus. It's a clear and compelling focus. It is a single and captivating focus. And if the church loses its primary focus, no matter what we do with children or youth or what we do globally, we lose the power to impact lives in a transformative way. The church in Ephesus that Timothy was given responsibility for was on the danger, in danger of losing the proper focus. And you can see that even in chapter 4 right after these words, how he encourages Timothy to confront some false teaching and a wrong focus. We are under pressure constantly to change the focus, and sadly, many churches in our culture today have lost their primary focus, and they're off on other 
topics and ideas and programs that have no eternal value. I read an interesting quote in a book called Focus. It's not a church book, it's a marketing book, but I think you'll see how it fits in. The sun provides the earth with billions of kilowatts of energy, yet if you stand in it for an hour, the worst you will get is a little sunburn. On the other hand, a few watts of energy focused in one direction is all a laser beam needs to cut diamonds. It's about focus. So the church is the household of God. We're the family of God, and yet if we lose our focus, we might just really feel good about hanging out with one another, but there's no eternal value even in our gatherings. The church is the church of the living God, yet if our message is just about God in general, which everybody talks about God in general and not God in specific, then we've lost the power that God intends us to have. The church is, as we pointed out last week, the pillar and the support of the truth. And yet there is one definitive truth that if we don't speak it, all the other truth, while it remains true, it loses its power and its impact. So what is this focus I'm talking about? That's the point of our text today. And that's the question we have to answer. So let me read just the portion we're focusing on today. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So without telling you what the focus of the church ought to be, we're just going to walk through this text until it becomes so clear, you'll say, how would we ever miss it? So in the first part of this verse, here's what we see. We see there's a common focus, a revealed focus, a practical focus, and a very great focus. So let's just talk about those four things first. You notice he says, by common confession... So as we get to the end of this passage, he says, now we come to this common confession that we have as a church. It's not just his common confession or just the apostles, but he's saying the common confession of the church is this, and then he's going to explain what it is. Now, if you have the King James Version, it says, without controversy. Now, that's kind of weird. That's like those aren't even saying the same thing. So the King James Version, that's not a really good literal translation in this case, but it kind of tells the other side of the story. This is the common confession, and it doesn't, it's not a point of controversy. At least it shouldn't be a point of controversy because it is the truth that we hold that we must proclaim. This common confession should not be controversial. And yet again, for the church that Timothy was given responsibility for, it had become controversial. And that's why he's writing these words. He's saying, Timothy, the focus of the church is not a controversial point. 
Timothy, it's not something that we should ever vacillate on or compromise on. It is the common confession without controversy. And he's saying, Timothy, there are some even within the church that are somehow making this controversial. So the focus of the church, it's a common focus. It's a common confession. And then we see that it's a revealed focus. And some of you are saying, well, it doesn't seem very revealed because it's talking about a mystery. So let's just talk about that word mystery of godliness. That word mystery, as it's used in the New Testament, is talking about something that was once hidden or shrouded and is now fully revealed. And it's used a number of times in the New Testament let me just show you a couple of other times this word mystery is used. Just before our passage today in 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul writes, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sort of gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So he's telling the deacons, or these, these that are should be deacons, that the mystery is something you're to hold on to. That means they know what it is. They need to hold on to it with a clear conscience. It has been now revealed to them, and it was once shrouded. When we go to Romans chapter 16, now to him who is able to establish you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now what? It's now manifested. So now he's speaking about the, using this word mystery as something that had been hidden and is now fully revealed. So the focus of the church, the church there in Ephesus, our church, the universal church, it's fully revealed now. It was once shrouded, but now it's fully revealed to us. It's a practical focus we see as well. This word godliness, it's a very practical word. You know, there are some mysteries that even if you knew what the answer was, it's really of no great value. I actually Googled some of the great mysteries of our world. One of the top ones is, where is Jimmy Hoffa's body buried? I'm thinking, I don't care, but I guess that's a great mystery. But even if I did know, is that any of practical value? Some say it's still a mystery who killed JFK. The real mystery is who let the dogs out, so as that one song goes. Some of you have no idea what that just meant. It's just a generational thing, I guess. All of those, they would say, are mysteries, but do they make any difference? This is the mystery of godliness. That word is sometimes used to describe God. He's, one of his characteristics is godliness. And it'd be used to be described in a way what all of us want in our lives a sense of godliness or even a practical godliness that would benefit us now and, of course, to someday stand before our Creator, 
in godliness. Amen? That's a very, very practical thing. The Apostle Paul speaks of this godliness nine different times when he writes to this young man, Timothy, and he always writes about it in very practical ways. Again, let me show you a few. He says, Timothy, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Does anybody want godliness? Amen. It's profitable now and for the life to come. And then he says later that this godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In that context, though, those who were in pursuit of kind of the pseudo-godliness because they thought it would make them wealthy. And the Apostle Paul says, no, but it does bring contentment, and that is really great gain. Do you want to be content in life? The Apostle Paul connects that with godliness. So we see it's a common focus, it's a revealed focus, it's a practical focus, so we have to answer the question, how does one experience godliness? And, and that seems to be the focus of the church. And then he says it's a great focus, great is the mystery of godliness. And that's interesting, that word great is used 243 times in the New Testament to be Apostle Paul who wrote most of the New Testament only uses it nine times. This is not a word that he throws around on lots of different things. That's great. You guys remember when awesome was the word that went with everything? Everything was awesome to the point that now nothing is awesome because everything was awesome. And so understand, this is a word that is used sparingly. Great, the Apostle Paul says. And I don't use that word very often. Great is the mystery of godliness. This is a wonderful thing. This is an important thing. This is a practical thing that we must understand, and it's the focus of the church. I think there's another reason that he says to Timothy or writes to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. Because there was something that the Apostle Paul and Timothy both experienced that I think this is tied to. You know, we could go to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is that book that tells us about the Apostle Paul's travels and what happened in these different places. And when we go to Acts chapter 19, it tells us about the time that the Apostle Paul was in Ephesus. And when he was in Ephesus, amazing things happened. And the gospel was doing powerful things, and of course, there was a resistance to it. And so there's this one scenario uh, in Acts chapter 19, where the gospel was powerfully moving through Ephesus, and all of the religious people of Artemis the Great started saying, no, we can't let this happen. And I want you to just notice what happened in Ephesus. When they heard this, or when they heard the gospel and all the things that God was doing, they, that's the people of Ephesus, were filled with rage, and they began crying out, saying what? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And the text goes on to say, and the apostle Paul was going to go in and make it all stop because he thought he could. And his friend says, no, you're going to get killed if you go out there. And the uh, officials of the city said the same thing. You're going to get killed if you go out there because these people are irate at you and at the message you're bringing. So somebody else steps out to try to calm the crowd. And this is what happens next. And when they recognized that this person was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours. Say it with me. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The Apostle Paul heard that. He was there when that happened. And I'm sure even as that is going on for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians in his mind and his heart. He's saying, no, it's not great. Artemis is not great. Artemis is a stone that fell down as a, somehow and you built a temple to it. And in that context, then, I think he writes to Timothy, Timothy, Artemis is not great, but great is the mystery of godliness. Timothy needed to know. The church at Ephesus needed to know. I need to know. You need to know that the message that we have as a church is the most powerful message that could ever be spoken, that could ever be shouted, and that could ever be heard on the planet today. And it doesn't matter how loud or how persistent the culture shouts the lie, it's still a lie. The message we proclaim is the only message that is a transformative message. The church with the proper focus is a powerful church. The church with the proper focus is a transformative church and a transforming church. But a church that's lost its focus has no power and literally no message. So again, look at verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. So what is this common focus? What is the revealed focus? What is the practical focus? What is the great focus? The next word tells us what the focus is. What's the next word? He. He. Anybody guess what, who he refers to? It's Jesus. The mystery of godliness is not a doctrine. The mystery of godliness is not a ritual. The mystery of godliness is not about a place. It's not about a creed. It's not about theology in general. And it's not a theory. The mystery of godliness that is the focus of the church is a person. The person and the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of the church, the message of the church, the power of the church. And just like that laser, the more we refocus on that and present that, there is great power. But the, if that gets diluted, there is no power. 
there's just a lot of warm, fuzzy feelings. Let me say it a little bit differently. The church is not about ceremonies or rituals or traditions or dogmas. The church, this Christian faith, is essentially and primarily about Jesus and his work. Scripture tells us that this mystery of godliness is the cornerstone of the church. Scripture tells us that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Scripture tells us Jesus is the head of the church. Last week, I reminded us we're the pillar and the support of the truth. And so we must present and uphold all of God's truth, yet we must specifically hold on and present and lift up the powerful truth about Jesus, who he is, and what he did. Jesus is the common confession. Jesus is the great confession. Jesus is the mystery now revealed. Jesus is the full manifestation of godliness and our only hope to access godliness. So what does he then go on to say about this he? It's beautiful. The words you see in the white now on your screen. I've just been loving this week, digging into this, and I hope and pray that what I communicate will impact you the way it did me. If you look at those words in your Bible, you'll probably notice they're set off just a little bit differently. They're like bracketed in a different way. Because it appears that the words there are not just words that the Apostle Paul was inspired to write. They're actually words of an ancient hymn that our early brothers and sisters sang as they gathered together. That they probably sang there in Ephesus. It was a song of their common confession. I love this idea that now we're going to actually work through the song that our brothers and sisters sang in some way, probably with a tune that we wouldn't like, but they sang it together because this was what they kept going back to. This was that laser focus they kept needing to be reminded of. Then as I was researching this this week, I stumbled across something I thought was really interesting, written by a guy named Pliny the Young. Weird name. But he was the nephew of Pliny the Older who raised him. Let me tell you about Pliny, and you'll see how this fits in in just a moment. He was some sort of a, an official, Roman official, and he wrote lots of letters back and forth, and we have over 200 of those letters still yet today. And these letters tell us a lot about what he experienced with these Christians. And again, he was kind of a governor, and he wrote to the emperor quite often telling what these Christians did, and they're actually kind of hard to read. It's how he tortured them and how he pursued them and what he had come to learn about them. So I came across a portion of this, one of these letters that was written by Pliny the Younger to the emperor of the day. Here's what he says the Christians did. They were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and to sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath 
not to some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and then assemble again to partake in food. Amen? Those are potlucks right there back in the early church. But ordinary and innocent food. So what we're reading there is what a secular pagan political leader of the time recognized that here's what these Christians do. What do they do? They get up early. It was the first service. Good job, you guys. You're up early. <laughs> and they, they, they held one another accountable that we should live godly lives. And they ate together. But did you notice what they did? They sang responsively a hymn. What was the hymn about? It was about it was to Christ as to a God. Understand what that means. They were singing this hymn repeatedly, responsively, repeating this very common confession, this essential truth that the Christ that we worship is God. Now go back to our text. I'm just wondering now, is this the hymn that they were singing? Because it's a hymn declaring, first of all, Christ is God. Let's walk through this hymn. It's a powerful statement of the message, the proclamation, the focus that we have. The first phrase, he who is revealed in the flesh. Some translations, actually, if you have the King James Version, it says God who is revealed in the flesh. But it's probably he referring to Jesus who was revealed in the flesh. This first phrase in this ancient hymn strikes at the indisputable core of the Christian faith. The truth that Jesus is God in flesh. The word revealed there. Sometimes it's translated manifest. It means to make visible. It does not mean to create or to bring into existence. It means to make something visible that has been in existence. So this one phrase hits the most pivotal doctrine of the church. The truth that Jesus is the eternal God and yet was revealed in flesh. Stating clearly that Jesus is not a created being. He is the eternal God who humbled himself and took on the form of a bondservant. This is a statement again that Jesus is the eternal word of God that was with God and is God and was God in eternity past. And that in Jesus, full deity dwells. And again, if this is not real, if this is not true, then the church has no proclamation that's going to help anybody at all because it's the pivot point of our message. So if you believe in a Jesus today that is not fully God, then you believe in a Jesus that can't grant you what you so desperately need, which is forgiveness from God. I said last week that one of the ways you can determine a Christian church from something else like a cult or a false religion is that they add other texts to the Bible and hold those as equal. Here is the other determining factor. That they worship a Jesus 
that is not the biblical Jesus. They worship a Jesus who is not eternal God become flesh. They worship a Jesus that is either a phantom or somehow a created being that is now taking on some form of deity. Those forms of Jesus cannot save anybody. Jesus is God-man fully. Let me show you this quote. It's kind of hard to follow, but I loved how it was said. This is from the 1600s. That's why it's kind of hard to follow. There is, no, there is so much to do in the church about which no one could doubt that it little matters, differing on points which concern no man's relation to his maker. There is no point I feel stronger on than the divinity of Christ, being convinced that with it the divinity of Christ, Christianity must live or perish. If the Savior of men were not identical with their Creator, I see no help in the cross for the suffering millions of the world. There is no help that we have to offer the world if Jesus is not fully God, taking on human form, to be the substitute for humans and then rising again. It is pivotal to our faith. So this ancient Christian hymn starts there. Jesus revealed in the flesh. God revealed in the flesh. What else does this hymn say about Jesus? It says he was vindicated in the spirit. That word vindicated can be translated proved right or proved righteous. Jesus was proved right by the Spirit. Now, there's a couple different takes on that. Some would say that this is a statement in contrast to revealed in the flesh, but in his spirit he was God, and that's what proved him righteous. I think it means here that the word spirit here is the Holy Spirit. That he was proved righteous or right by the very third member of the triune God. Remember when Jesus was baptized by John, it was a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus have anything to repent from? No. But it was an example to us. And after that baptism, you know how that passage went. The Father spoke and the Spirit came down like a dove, landing on him, vindicating, proving Jesus at that moment. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be directly tempted by the devil. And Jesus was victorious because the Holy Spirit working in him vindicated him or empowered him to overcome that temptation. Acts 10 reminds us that Jesus was filled with power by the Holy Spirit to heal and to release people from spiritual bondage. And Romans 8 tells us the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and this is the ultimate vindication, amen? He rose from the dead. The Spirit of God vindicates Jesus that he really is, he really is who he says he is, God in flesh. The next phrase says he's seen by angels. This was interesting, seen by angels. Now, the angels have been around for a long time with God, Sometime in an eternity past, they were created and they were always with God then. 
But it seems like this phrase is telling us something unique that my mind kind of went weird this week thinking about. Not only was Jesus revealed to humans in the flesh, that this revealing of Jesus in the flesh was also something that was magnificent even to the angels. This plan for God to become human was the plan that the triune God determined in eternity past. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if when it happened, the angels are saying, oh my gosh, I didn't see that happening, or I didn't see that going to happen. You ever watch a movie and you think you have it all figured out, and then, oh man, I didn't see that coming. So bear with me with a little sanctified imagination. Imagine Gabriel hanging out with God in heaven, and then God tells Gabriel, I want you to go tell Mary that she's going to give birth to my son. Now, I don't think Gabriel hesitated at all. He went and did that. But I'm just wondering as he's going, he's saying, man, I didn't see this happening. <laughs> I didn't see this coming. This is amazing that God is going to do this. And we're going to behold and see the eternal God in human form. And then as you go through the story, Jesus, or the angels are in there for the preparation of the birth, the announcement of the birth, they're in his temptation, they're in his trials and his resurrection and his ascension. And then when we get to, to Peter, the apostle Peter writes, the angels long to look into these things. In other words, the angels say, this is amazing of what's happening, that God has become flesh and redeemed humans. This Jesus, who is the common confession of the church, is the eternal God in flesh, who the Holy Spirit vindicated, who the angels marveled at as they served him. And then notice the next phrase, he is proclaimed among the nations. And again, that is kind of the main point of our message. It is the focus of the church. It is what we proclaim to the nations. Jesus is the one message we have to proclaim to the nations. Yes, we have the entire Bible to preach and share, but understand the whole counsel of God, hear this now, the whole counsel of God presented, if it is devoid of Jesus, that only digresses into legalism or moralism or emotionalism or religion. If Jesus is not right in the center of it. Again, we talked last week. I said that anybody that stands up here to preach, every week you should expect to hear about Jesus. No matter what the text is, Old Testament, New Testament, it's about Jesus. Now again, it might be a real good presentation, it might be a real clear presentation, it might be a very pointed presentation, but if it doesn't have Jesus right in the center of it, it is a powerless presentation. It will only encourage you to be more moral or to be more good or to do more religion. Imagine for a moment a man dying of thirst and he just needs a drink of water and there's a vase to contain water and it's a beautiful vase. It's covered with jewels and fine stones and it's shaped beautifully and it's wonderful, behold, and you hold the vase up to this man's mouth 
to give him some water, but there's no water in it. It's beautiful. It's ornate. It's nicely shaped. But if there's no water in it, what good is it? Amen? Such is any message you hear in any church that doesn't have Jesus front and center, it becomes pointless to help you. I like how the Apostle Paul states this to the church at Corinth, for we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord, and we're bondservants for his sake. So Jesus is the proclamation of the church, so the next phrase only makes sense, he's the one that is believed on in the world. If the church is focused on Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, presenting Jesus to all the nations, then people are going to come to believe in who? In Jesus. They're not going to become somehow just followers of God in general. They're not going to just be churchgoers. They're going to be believers in Jesus. And if the church is not focused on Jesus and proclaiming something other than Jesus, then people don't come to believe in Jesus. And the church has lost its way. I was thinking this week, I am so thankful that somebody told me about Jesus. Is that true for you? It was my mom at first. And then I had Sunday school teachers that kept telling me about Jesus. I had youth leaders that told me about Jesus. I had a pastor that served in the church for 40 years that repeatedly told me about Jesus every Sunday morning and every Sunday night. I was looking through some old photos, not that I have, but they're on Facebook, so part of my sermon prep this week was looking at Facebook. How about that? I grew up in Colorado at what was Inglewood First Christian Church, and there are all these photos of that old church that I'm in, and, and above the baptistry, there's three words, Christ our hope. I just remember seeing that week after week. The pulpit uh, at that church was a cross, a white cross that every pastor stood behind when he preached. And I didn't know this till later, but there was actually a photo of it. On the back side of it, only seen by those that would be stepping up to preach, was a short phrase from the Gospel of John, has a larger context, but the words were simply, Sir, we would see Jesus. So everybody that stepped up to there understood my main goal is to get these people to see who? Jesus. That's the goal. And so that's what happened in that church week after week, year after year. And by God's grace, it keeps happening here year after year after year. The Apostle John is the one that drives home the point that the world must believe in Jesus if they're to be saved. Let me just show you what John says a number of places. You know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, say it, believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's Jesus and belief in Jesus that gives eternal life. He says just a little bit later, who he writes, he, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Notice, this belief is not just some academic belief, but it's a belief that works itself out in obedience. This is a transformative belief. 
It's belief in the Son. It's obedience to the Son. In John 6, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life. Again, we see belief and eternal life connected again. And then Jesus, in talking to a woman in grief, he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you see the point? It's not belief in God in general. You ask most people in your circle if they believe in God, and all of them will say what? Yeah, I believe in God. That's not a saving belief. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about who he is? What do you believe about what he did? What do you believe about Jesus? So let's keep proclaiming Jesus to the nations, amen? But not just as a church, not just here on Sunday morning, not here on Wednesday night, not in our global work, but that's even individually. Understand, that's your message to your world. It's Jesus. It's not the good things you're doing. It's not the bad things they are doing. It is Jesus that is the transformative message that we have. Interesting experience this last week. I was leaving Redland Cafe after a little discipleship meeting I was having with a brother, and I had my Bible because we read our Bibles there in the Redland Cafe. And I went up to pay, and our server who serves us every week, I laid my Bible on the counter, and he said, so what Bible is that? I didn't know what he meant by that. I'm thinking, is he, is he asking me what, what version of it is? I think he was actually getting at what church are you a part of. I don't know that he knew how to ask that. And, and I, so I really didn't know how to answer. Like, how would you answer, what Bible is that? So the best I could do is, well, that's the Bible that tells us about Jesus. That's the best I could do. And that led to a very short conversation about who? About Jesus, which is what I was, I guess, hoping would happen and what I hope will continue to happen because this is the Bible that tells us about Jesus. The last phrase of this ancient hymn sung by our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago is says he was taken up into glory. This is a reference to the ascension of Jesus. It's captured by Luke in his gospel and it's captured by Luke in his history of the church. Let me show it to you in Acts chapter 1. This is what Luke captures. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up. He was taken up into glory. And they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood there beside him. There's those angels showing up. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So this phrase, taken up to glory, is referencing that event in the life of Jesus. Now there's a number of amazing truths that come out of his ascension, but here's two that I just want you to hang on to. This ascension was a declaration of the victory that Jesus had accomplished. He had come, 
He had lived perfectly. He had died on purpose. He had rose from the dead. And now he is going back to his glory as it was before this all happened. Jesus is now returning to the glory that he had before his incarnation. And as we stated, he's now, it says, seated in the place of authority at the right hand of the Father. So the disciples are now seeing this almost statement of victory. I've accomplished what I intended to do, and I'm kind of passing the baton to you. I'm going up into glory. So it's a declaration of victory. It's also a declaration of anticipation for these men who saw this. Notice the angel says specifically, this Jesus you saw ascend into heaven will descend how? In just the same way. I think that means it's going to be visible and it's going to be physical. And you're going to be able to see it. And of course, no doubt in their mind, they are thinking, when's that going to happen, Right? Actually, go back to the previous text right before this. They were wanting to know, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, you don't need to know when I'm going to do all those things. And then he, shortly after that, ascended and said, and it was told, I'm, he's going to come back. But now you notice the anticipation. The expectation for the followers of Jesus based on the fact that he was taken up into glory, that he will come again in just the same way. May it be soon, amen? May we stay about the task he's given us, amen, until that time. One of the big impacts in my life by doing this series is just this sense of honor and privilege to be a part of God's creation of the church. I'm part of something way beyond me, longer lasting than me, much more important than me. Never lose sight, church, of, of the wonder of church as God designed it to be, the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of truth, the one that has the mystery of godliness that we can proclaim to the world, never, never lose the wonder of that. Are you doing church right? You're just kind of looking for some right church. A man was marooned on a, marooned on a desert island, and after he'd been there for five years, he was found and he was rescued. And as he climbed into the rescue boat, his rescuers noticed there were three huts on the beach. And they asked the man, I thought you were the only one. Why is there three huts? And he said, well, that hut is my house, and the other hut is my church. And they said, well, what's the third hut? And he said, that's the church I used to belong to. Whatever church you go to, if you go to it, it won't be a perfect church. And it's not a perfect church. That's just a really silly story of how we're looking for something that doesn't exist in church. 
And yet we're a part of something that is powerful if we'll just step into it and understand how God intended it to be. There is no perfect church because church is, in its essence, people. There is not even a church that is doing everything right all the time because the church is people. But God is pleased to use us and never give up on us and sustain us and empower us if we'll just seek him and desire to do church the way that he has designed it to be. May God help us to that end. Father God, we do commit ourselves to you. A very imperfect people, but we confess again today we have a perfect Savior in Jesus. That is our hope, that is our confidence, and that is our message. Father, I pray you'd forgive us for thinking about church and thinking about brothers and sisters, uh, even thinking about the universal church in ways that are just not as you've designed us to think and to live in church. So I commit myself to you, Father, to live uh, as a part of this particular church and even the global church as you desire me to. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we conclude this short series that you would just help them and give them that desire to just live in church and be in the church as you've desired them to be. Lord, would you just stir us again with this amazing sense of call you have on us because we are the hope on the planet. And we say that, Father, because we have the message of hope in Jesus. So stir up in us yet again the wonder of that and the privilege of that and the hope that we have in that. So even as we sing, Father, we sing of our Savior Jesus, the one that's above all, the one that's in everything, the one that's in us and then working through us. We sing even to our Savior now.